Hi, this is John Nahas. And Jay Kurahashi Sifwe of Avalanche, the first decentralized smart contracts platform with a highly scalable ecosystem. We love hanging with the edge of NFT hosts and you, their ride listeners. Keep listening with us and enjoy this avalanche of awesome info on the latest and greatest in NFTs. Hey, all you NFT curious listeners. Check out today's episode to learn how Avalanche's cooperative take on partnership and competition creates a bigger pie for everyone. What Avalanche is going to do with $230 million of cheese. And hear about TikTok's big time NFT fail. All this and more on today's episode. Enjoy. Welcome to the Edge of NFT with your hosts, Jeff Kelly, Ethan Janney, and Josh Krieger the podcast that brings you the top 1% of NFTs today and what will stand the test of time. We explore the nuts and bolts and the business side and also the human element of how NFTs are changing the way we interact with the things we love. This podcast is for the dreamers, disruptors, and doers who are pumped about this ecosystem and driving where it goes next. Today's episode features John Nahas and Jay Kurahashi Safue of Avalanche, the blazingly fast, low-cost, eco-friendly, smart contract platform. John is the VP of Business Development for Ava Labs. At Ava Labs, John's mandates include growing the Avalanche ecosystem through the adoption of wallets, assets, and applications. Additionally, he focuses on key infrastructure to enable developers and DeFi users to utilize Avalanche. John also oversees enterprise partnerships, adoption of Avalanche, strategic investments, and growing the ecosystem. How about Jay? Jay is the VP of Marketing at Ava Labs. At Ava Labs, Jay's mandates include maintaining Avalanche's social media presence and partnership marketing. Prior to Ava Labs, Jay was the head of marketing at a blockchain organization in Brooklyn. Shout out to Brooklyn called Fluidity. Avalanche is an open source platform for launching decentralized applications and enterprise blockchain deployments in one interoperable, highly scalable ecosystem. Avalanche is the first decentralized smart contracts platform built for the scale of global finance with near instant transaction finality. Ethereum developers can quickly build on Avalanche as Solidity works out of the box. Jay and John. It's a pleasure to have you on Edge of NFT. Welcome. Thanks for having us. Yeah, Thanks. Welcome, fellas. Yeah, guys, this has been uh, a little while in the making. So you guys have been busy cooking up a lot of, of fun stuff. There may be some puns throughout this podcast because I've been playing around in the Avalanche network and uh, it is super fast. And I would say it's a wonderland of sorts, but <laughs> yeah. just a little hint there. And I have a new Trader Joe's that I shop at now, thanks to Avalanche. <laughs> So, all right, no more puns. How did you all connect with Avalanche originally? I'll go first. So I joined the, the company Avalabs in May 2020. So a little bit, probably a year and a half ago. I was actually Fluidity nod that was given in the intro. I was working at Fluidity and that was where we really focused on two things, decentralized exchange and a security token capability, if you will. We got acquired by Consensus and that was kind of the decision where I was saying, okay, well, maybe do I want to move over to Consensus? Or do I want to start something else? And, and the natural next step was, hey, maybe there's something interesting to be done with other things beyond Ethereum. And it was definitely a risk, but that's basically how I came about the project. Yeah, I had 
I've been like a serial entrepreneur my whole life. I worked in startups ranging from new media to international trade. I uh, got bit by the blockchain bug in like 2015, 2016, but really got started in 2017 as a founding team for a company called Token Vault. Got acquired by Franklin Templeton at the end of 2019. I stuck around till the beginning of 2020. You know, big enterprise isn't the ideal place for, for continued innovation and, and fast-paced stuff. So took a little bit of time off with COVID and everything, then started to jump back in, was talking to different players, got connected to and once I did, started doing a little diligence on the team and Avalanche itself, I was sold. So I joined first week of September. So about two weeks before we went live on mainnet and, and on the BD team center. And I guess we've been feeding you along the way, right? Jeff, Jeff and I started a territory and that was cool to hear that you've been a consumer of ours. Did we get his favorite dish? What did he like? Do you like the buffalo territory uh, food? Oh, the chicken satay. Oh, oh nice. That's, that's a good one. Awesome. Well, that's great, guys. Look, it's been a pivotal year for NFTs, right? I mean, hit the mainstream in a massive way. Yep. What was your individual first exposures to them? And, and when did it really stick that this was going to be big? Let's start with you, Jay. Sure. I think it was honestly, one of the earlier projects that was out. And I used to say it was the first one, but I don't know if it's true. CryptoKitties, that was really when I started getting these. CryptoKitties started clogging the Ethereum network. I think it was spring or winter time, if I recall correctly. And I was very much in the finance sector of blockchain. It was before it was called DeFi. So we were just pushing through these trading applications and some of these more complex primitives that we know to be actually much bigger now. And everyone started to say, why the hell are these cats clogging Ethereum blockchain? I thought this was for finance, not for these collectible, cute little cats. And I think from there, I was thinking, oh, well, this is actually interesting, but it's hard to really tether it to something that makes me want to say, oh, well, I think this is the future. It wasn't quite yet. It was kind of like how Bitcoin is that bug for most people in blockchain. I feel like CryptoKitties was that bug for NFT collectors and NFT users and professionals. And I think as you started to go along, a lot of different brands started to capture it like it's capturing it now. So MLB actually tried their hand at NFTs at that same thing. I actually owned the first NFT from that collaboration. It was MLB and some other Lucid sites or some, some company named like something like that. Um, I checked. It has absolutely no value. No one cares about it. But point is, is it was actually in the step in the right direction. And I think not until about two or three years ago, or I guess like a year after that, I'm just to keep it in, in sync with the kind of roadmap I'm laying out. I was actually trading an OTC with a bunch of synthetics traders, and a lot of them had CryptoPunks on their profile picture. And I was like, well, this is interesting. I only know these guys through their punks. Some of them are anonymous. Some of them just don't want to necessarily show their identity and not necessarily anonymous. I'm just on online. And, and all of a sudden, I think they were like 0.5 ETH. And at the time, I guess it was might have been a couple hundred dollars. And even then, I was like, whoa, a couple hundred bucks for a profile picture. I don't know about that. Or JPEG. Yeah, exactly. The, oh the man, JPEG. I'm still kicking myself about the board <laughs> API club and, and $1,500 yeah. seemed like, wow, that, that's a lot. <laughs> it's the same thing. So it's kind of like, you know, that was luckily how I, I really got into the, into the collection side of things and started to collect some punks here and there. And then there's some other smaller projects that are, some of them are big, some of them don't exist anymore. So basically just a, a trial and error and fast forward to today very much involved in it now. Um, but that's kind of how I got into the NFT space. My advice, Jay, is as you continue to do public speaking in the space, you keep mentioning that MLB drop and eventually people will realize that that's like a legacy drop. Like That's what I'm doing. 
I'm just going to keep saying it's be honest. That was Jay's plan from the start here. Yeah. I'm going to see you guys later. <laughs> Mission accomplished. John, how about you, man? What was your first exposure? I'm actually a converted skeptic. So when I first started hearing and seeing about stuff way back when I was like, this is silly. This is expensive. These are JPEGs, right? Like I was like everybody else who's kind of a skeptic because I personally didn't have any exposure to it. As I start to see things pop up on Avalanche, and I'm like, oh, I'll buy a couple here and there, and I'll buy a couple here. And then you start to feel this connection to these things that you're collecting, right? right? I haven't had that, like, so I come in from an emotional way, right? Like, for me, it's when I was a kid, and was, whether it was car, physical cards or pogs or whatever it was that we were collecting during our youth, it brings back that nostalgia and that feeling. So I started, like, buying it on drops, even then, I was still kind of like maybe on these things because I was like, ah, like I'm very much a tangible person. As you can see by all the books behind me, I can't read on anything electronic. I like books. I like hardcover. I'm still stuck to that old world. But the moment for me truly was several months ago. I was actually at an event and there was a silent auction and they had this like super cool USC thing. So I'm a two-time Trojan alumni. So fight on everybody. And I wanted to buy this thing. Like I was dying to buy it called my wife. It's a put it, it's a really big thing. So she's like, okay, you can buy it and it'll go under the bed. And organically on my own, I was like, I wish this was an NFT, right? Where I was like, huh, I'm not going to have a room in my house where I'm going to store collectibles or tchotchkes or things that mean something to me, but I will never show. So that, that shift for me was an emotional shift because I was like, I don't have a wall to put this huge thing on. Like, I wish this was an NFT. And that's when it really clicked for me. That's when I started noticing. And more so with our with our partnerships with like Tops and everything else, right? And during COVID, I think that accelerated everything for us. Like, I'm not going to go to the, to the store. My kid, I have two kids. I'm not going to want to take them to the store to buy this or that. They can buy it online. They can sell it and trade it globally. They don't have to go to like, you know, a corner of their elementary school during lunchtime and like swap pogs like I used to or do things like that. So it's really just through time I've, and personal circumstances, I've just come around to be like, yeah, this thing. Right on. Yeah. More of a gradual kind of adoption curve for you on that. That's amazing. Uh, it's a great answer though. You kind of took us all the way from kind of first exposure to, you know, why we can all see that there's such a strong foundation here. I'd love to start talking about NFTs integrated with Avalanche here. Some of the projects that we can we can see that you guys are working on, like uh, Kalau and Avax Apes. Anybody volunteer want to start off with that? Take that question. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in. So you know, I love you kind of how we see the NFT space on Avalanche kind of mature. Uh, they're in three buckets. One we call the digital collectibles or licensed products, right? That's ops as their top. NFTs on us. That's from Bazooka Joe, MLB Inception, MLB Series 2, Bundesliga, and most recently Godzilla, and much more to come. On the backs of that, we have multiple other kind of platforms that are similar. Those are enterprise or companies that are licensed, that are selling licensed products. The second is kind of the artist vertical. So, you know, you see a lot of artists that aren't really launching NFTs on Ethereum because they have an ethos with sustainability that just doesn't work, mesh with proof of work chains right now. But Jason Peterson just launched a one-on-one mural. It's like a hundred, 200 foot mural in Chicago, a physical mural. The ownership of that mural is tied to an NFT. He's also dropping some of his uh, iconic photographs, both celebrities and cityscapes. And we're seeing a lot of interest from artists to come onto Avalanche. And the third and final one, 
uh, would be what we call headless art. So that's community-driven projects. No one person or brand is behind it. Kind of the community and the project itself is a brand. So that's Avox Apes, Avox Trees. There's so many new things popping up every day. Uh, bridge, bridge Apes. <laughs> yeah. Avox Ski Team is coming. There's so many of these organic community projects that are really growing on us. That's great. In terms of infrastructure, uh, the top side and the license side, there's things that Ava Labs is working to build Web3 kind of functionality to bridge fiat and crypto, which we can get into. But more so than that, NFT trade is a marketplace that's live. And then Kalau is, I believe, launching first week of November. That's going to be, I think, one of the largest marketplaces on us. They're going to have an NFT marketplace, a kind of metaverse AI functionality. So lots going on, kind of hard to keep up. Very cool. I love this sort of meta. It almost like it appears to me in my imagination, like one of those giant like mirror infinities, right? This like idea of aping ape projects, right? It just goes on and on, right? Totally. (laughs) Jay, any thoughts on that, on what's going on with NFTs in Avalanche or, or did John pretty much cover it? John covered probably the the good portion of at least the projects. I, I won't go into that, but maybe the main thing that's interesting to me with Avalanche is what's next. What's the stuff that we're seeing through the deal flow? What's the stuff we're seeing when people are saying, "Hey, we're looking to launch. Like, we need help on marketing, BD, even product, kind of all across the all across those verticals." And the next step is some of the more complex products and applications. So there's gaming, and I think with Avalanche, what's exciting for people like John and myself is you're seeing the speed really. Com- come through. And I know, Josh, you were saying like, it's just fast. It's just fun to use. And it's just kind of something that's new. And it's kind of like when you're back in the internet, when you use the internet and you use dial-up and you had to deal with all those pains. And I feel like the dial-up is like having MetaMask on on a slow chain or something. And and all of a sudden you're strapped into some broadband or maybe it's something even faster. It's just like, well, holy shit, actually, we don't actually have to have this type of experience. We could have something that's better. And also the complexities of these games can really grow. One company or one product that they're based out of South Asia and they're creating this, this game where there's all these kind of like um, an Axie where there's pieces that are NFTs and components of the game that involve those pieces. And if you think about how games work, they're not always turn by turn or they're not all super. So imagine what you could do if finality is and you can have throughput of thousands of transactions per second, then you could actually have regular Web 2 games that exist on Web 3 infrastructure. That's really what's interesting me. And hopefully there's more that I don't even know of that's going to come onto our laps um, in terms of deals or, or just projects on our radar and stuff that I'm really excited about the next year or so. You know, we follow this space very closely and there's a few projects you mentioned in the NFT space that we didn't hear about. I have a little bit of FOMO. So on that note, like how do people stay on top of the games and the NFTs that are dropping on your platform? Yeah, that's always kind of the million dollar question, right? Everyone's trying to seek out the game and be as early as possible. I mean, there's, I think there's a bunch of different angles, at least externally facing, but the main one is really just doing more research than the other person. I know that's a really annoying answer, but that's kind of the game right now is there's always going to be someone in the world that's going to spend more time to figure out what it's the next big thing. And if you're not at least competitive to that person or that group of people, you're going to be late you know, after the product is deployed and, and the tokens and things like that. So I think to give a tangible answer, I mean, one, I don't think this is necessarily, the, this is, I think, a pretty solid one. And talking to this project called RugDoc, the third-party project that helps evaluate different risks 
obviously provides scoring scores for decentralized apps. And the thing that's interesting to me is from their use cases, I was like, oh, well, have you guys thought of a way to create a function to sort the evaluations by the time the contracts are deployed? So at least then people could say, all right, well, the early projects, you're not obviously not going to look at the high risk ones, just as, unless, I mean, you might, but most people probably want to look at some of the stuff that's middle of the road risky or, or even just very risk averse. And then from there, you can at least minimize the pool to something that's at least palatable and say, okay, I'm going to evaluate these instead of just trying to boil the whole ocean. And they actually have this function through a calendar and the calendar just shows different product updates. And I told them, I said, hey, this could be an insanely fruitful tool for early adopters to use. I mean, I think they're really leading into that. Yeah, no, it looks cool. I'm on their website now. So that's a good tip. Let's dig into some of those projects a little bit more. I mean, mainly the, the tops one, obviously, is a huge collaboration, classic collectible play there. Can you tell us a little bit more of what we can expect from that partnership? So I'll jump in here and then, I mean, Tops is a very important partner, of course, to us. And, and we saw a huge opportunity there to really bring NFTs with kind of some history to it, right? Especially the digital collectibles in the licensed product space. When we started talking to them, they, they understood the need to kind of move into the future as well. And you know, they have a huge portfolio of properties and content and IP. So I guess in terms of what's coming, there's a lot still, hopefully a lot. So we're really excited for all the, the things they have, all the things that they're they're talking to currently to bring into the fold as well. But the biggest point with Tops, I think that we touch that we want to touch on is when we started working with them, we, you know, we wanted to have something different. The total crypto stuff, Web3. MetaMask, connect the wallet, buy crypto. That's not really a mass market. Something like Top Shot, Super Web 2, that's great, very easy to use. But we wanted a hybrid, and they wanted a hybrid too, right? Where you can click on every NFT, see it on chain in the Explorer, go to your name, your profile, click on your wallet, see what's in your wallet. And I guess the most important part of all this is that platform is going to grow, right? So right now it's custodial, but eventually it'll be non custodial. You'll be able to withdraw your NFTs in the future. Currently, you're paying with fiat, so credit, debit, and balance for primary and secondary. But crypto payments are going to be coming there too. It just made more sense to start with retail because a crypto native person can use a credit debit card than the other way around, right? So the site is also, and, and the platform as it grows, is intended to also bring along a new generation of users and customers to the Web3 experience, to NFTs, to crypto, right? So they'll be like, hey, what is a wallet? What is a transaction hash? What is, you know, an NFT really? How do I find it on chain? So there'll be a learning experience along with that because the crypto user can know how to, right? But to bring that normie, to bring the traditional collector who's always been a fan of tops, MLB, or whatever it is, over Web3 experience and bring them along the way is really a key aspect of that platform. Well, if there was a podcast they could listen to along the way, kind of onboard. And, <laughs> Sounds uh, yeah, pretty cool. If you hear of one, that would be sweet. <laughs> well, guys, yeah, there, I mean, Tops, there, there are a lot of companies, I think, out there that, that fit a similar profile, like you know, massive movers trade on nostalgia as well as, as kind of new content. What other big enterprises are out there that are either on the platform now or if they're not on the platform? You know, what should they know about working with Avalanche? I think the most important thing is 
on the technological side, right? It's a novel new consensus protocol. It's a third ever consensus protocol after classical consensus, Nakamoto consensus, Avalanche is only the third ever con novel consensus protocol. Every other chain has used one or the other in the past or made some minor tweaks. Why that matters is because it creates the primary network and that network has a flexible architecture. I like to sometimes say, you know, you have your kind of enterprise chains and your DeFi chains and your NFT chains and your supply chain chains. The benefit of Avalanche is it's truly decentralized over a thousand validators, 1,050 uh, within a year, fast throughput of 4,500 transactions per second and near instant to sub-second finality. So it's like you guys are saying, it's easy to use. It's just clicks. And the more things come on, the more they become interoperable, right? So when we do talk to enterprise, whether it's for NFTs or for payments or for supply chain or XYZ, they realize that building on an avalanche allows them to have access to all these other things, right? That certain parts of the platform are complementary to other parts. You can run a smart contract, you can do payments, you can connect one aspect to another. It's a really flexible architecture, right? So it's kind of, what do you want to build? Come and build it and the platform will scale with you. You know, familiar because particularly for the EVM aspect, right? So our C-chain is EVM compatible, runs on Solidity. So we see a lot of people that initially had built something for Ethereum and have just said, look, it's too expensive for us to do this certain product, right? The margins are too small for what we want to build. We're going to port it. We're going to launch it on you instead. Conversely, we've had guys build on us and deploy on both. We see ourselves as a complement to Ethereum. You know, Ethereum paved the way with the EVM. So build on us, deploy on both, and then let the market decide. Let people decide where they prefer to use it, right? And so, you know, we're seeing kind of adoption across the board from 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 numerous different players. I'll tell you, yeah, awareness is like going through the roof also, right? On so many different fronts and all the partnerships, the activities, just kind of shouting from the rooftops about what Avalanche is and what it can be for people. So yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, I just wanted to know, thank God for the new update to MetaMask, right? Because converting over to Binance Smart Chain and any other chains used to be a real pain in the butt just a few months ago. But but, you know, I was able to the sites that connect with Avalanche, if you are using your MetaMask in one click, it automatically configures everything and you're good to go. Mm -hmm. And even that, like, that's obviously a great step in the right direction, but still not perfect by any means. So I think there's so much left to go, um, which will then help enable perhaps the next wave of adoption. Yeah, it sounds like you guys are thinking about sort of credit card on-ramps for, you know, projects with, that have a more mainstream audience. Anything you can share there? On the payment side specifically or just in yeah, general? Yeah, just on how we sort of, what you guys are thinking about in terms of on-ramping users with credit cards and more traditional payment processing. So we already have an existing relationship with a couple of providers such as Wired, Transact, Nash. If you go to Pangolin, which is a DEX, you can literally put your credit card in and, and, and swoop right in and buy a token using a debit credit card. We're working with these partners as well as forthcoming on-ramps fiat payment providers to integrate them into other wallets that are native to Avalanche or that support Avalanche. So you could buy a Vox straight into your wallet or any other tokens, and then as well as, as NFTs. So, you know, if you want to go on a site, have a Web3 application, you want to buy it, it's priced and denominated in, in a Vox, you'll be able to really just use a credit debit card and, and they'll, they'll do that swap for you. Avalabs, on the other side of that, has done kind of the payment 
conversion payment relayer technology for what you see on the top side, right? Everything is, again, credit, debit, or you can hold a balance in a wallet, and then the conversion happens uh, to settle anything needs to settle on chain in terms of payment there, and then the unlocking or minting of the NFT. Right on. Very cool. I guess the focus, though, real quick there is for the crypto native person, this is, but how do we get to that next million, 10 million, 50 million users, not just of Avalanche, but of crypto in general, right? The more adoption expands across the ecosystem for any platform or any any kind of project, the better it is for everybody. The more users, the more we all benefit. And at the end of the day, it's kind of abstracting away that crypto complexity, right? I feel like crypto people love that sometimes because it's like a club. It's like our own group that we only understand or know and interact with. But if you really want the space to mature and grow and achieve the, the maturity and kind of the, the trajectory that we all know it will, you need to bring a lot more people on board and kind of abstracting away those difficulties is the easiest and best way to do so. Yeah, we make a lot of analogies between you know the web, just the evolution of the internet and the web and websites and what's going on now in crypto, you know, comparing to say like the late 90s, or early 2000s. And you do see nowadays, right? People can grab some JavaScript code. They can grab some HTML code. They can copy and paste. The general public can do stuff like that. And at the same time, they're not going to be coding websites, hard coding websites. You know, even the best of the web developers nowadays aren't even doing that. So it looks like that's kind of where we're headed with cryptocurrencies. Yeah, you know, people may be able to sort of engage a little bit with some of the technical information, but in the end, we want to keep it out of their way. I have a question here about this huge raise that Avalanche announced of $230 million last month. I uh, would love to know more about what Avalanche is working on right now, near-term projects and partnerships on the roadmap. One example I know recently completed the Avalanche DeFi Rush, uh, DeFi Incentive Program, integration of Curve and Aave. Yeah, what, what can you guys tell us about the investment and where it's going? Yeah, the current moment in time that we're in right now, at least within the Avalanche ecosystem, is really about bootstrapping the growth as quickly as possible and as aggressively as possible. In this ecosystem and the kind of market conditions that we're in, everyone's racing. And kind of like I said before about trying to be just ahead of that one person who's doing more uh, research than, than you are, it's kind of the same thing, right? It's very much saying, if you don't put in the time to put in all of the pieces to help facilitate that growth, and another project will do that. And you're seeing that with incentives. Avalanche Rush is not the only incentive program that exists. There's also plenty of other ones as well. And so I think kind of drilling down to the basics, it's really about user experience. It seems to be the theme around this discussion. It's the theme around most discussions these days, I would say. And Avalanche, blockchain in general as a wider category is still complex. And so how do we make that as easy as possible? Well, with Avalanche, you can make it easy on the protocol level. How can we make it so people don't have to deal with the complexities of understanding which chain does what? You just simply use it, and that's how it works. That's how it should be, and that's how email protocols work. That's how internet protocols work. Any of the protocols that we're used to kind of, we basically take for granted now, um, that's how it's been programmed for you. Or that's how it's been uh, set as a default for you, I guess. On the other hand, there's also ways to run in parallel to those efforts, I would say, because that work is actually a little bit more challenging than maybe most people tend to want to believe. And so it just has a longer time to market. Effectively, distributed systems and upgrading them is hard, plain and simple. 
So the other side I always like to mention is, and this is still related to engineering and product mostly, but would be the infrastructure. So what I mean by that is explorers, wallets, maybe there's DAP browsers. Those seem to have disappeared after like the 2017, 2018 era, but I thought it was a really good direction. But for some reason, people haven't innovated as much on that. But effectively with Avalanche, we've identified the situation where we're saying, oh, well, a lot of these items are still fragmented. When a user comes into the blockchain ecosystem, basically, they're kind of the hero, which isn't necessarily the right way to do it if you want mass adoption, because you're basically giving them the burden of choice and the burden of research and all the things and saying, okay, well, you entered blockchain, what's next? Well, I could pick a wallet, I could pick an exchange, I could pick an explorer. There's cl- there are clearly better choices to pick first to get onto that path to potentially using it or purchasing it is something that's a little bit random in nature. And so with the product team, and I think it's multifunction, so all of us on John's side, my side, and engineering and product as well, we're all coming together and we're saying, what's the feedback that's coming externally? What are the thoughts that we have internally as basically people that have been around the block within crypto, but also other major enterprises and brands? And how can we make sure that people don't have to think about the decision? So one of the really exciting things that we're pushing through is this kind of all-encompassing internally, we're calling it this OS, but it's effectively this concept of having wallets being easily accessible. Once you're in the wallet and you have funds deposited, easy process too, then you could go and explore the wide ecosystem of Avalanche. You don't have to say, oh, I want to use an AMM. I want to use an NFT marketplace. You just look at it and it should say, okay, well, this these are kind of the choices and here's kind of the quick snippets as to what you can do. And here's here's how you can use it. And hopefully there's also educational material around it. So that's the first step. The next step, I think it's to be honest, but you can kind of see where it's going. It's just about fine tuning that experience, listening to the product feedback, and then also making sure that we're implementing it at pace And effectively, all of the things that you were mentioning, Ethan, with rush, raises, all of those things are basically to help out just kind of bringing the attention towards these new innovations that we're trying, or these kind of new initiatives that we're trying to push through. That's all it is. And I think all together, it's going to be very, very nice. And that's the stuff that we're most excited about because we're still just scratching the surface. It's like a community agile development on steroids. Yeah, that's a new business buzz term. (laughs) I mean, to add to what Jay's saying, right? I mean, the foundation raised that money and that's great because that's going to go to really kind of, you know, throwing jet fuel onto this fire that I think we've started, right? Whether it's, you know, investing in teams, in developers, in projects, in products, in infrastructure pieces that really make it easy, right? On the product side, I think that the biggest star of the Rush program, which I'll get to, is the Avalanche Bridge, right? Like that was developed, you know, there's time and expense that goes into developing these things. And I think the Avalanche Bridge has become a meme now on crypto Twitter with good bridging, right? Like people are taking pictures in front of bridges. And the reason is, is because it made it easy to move from Ethereum to us. And that bridge is going to continue to expand other networks as well and really kind of create this interoperability with other blockchains for value to transfer easily without kind of this difficulty that we're used to in the current system. So, you know, these kind of cornerstone pieces take time, right? They take effort, they take internal teams, they take external teams to build. So the funds, you know, are going to, I'm sure going to go to help, you know, incentivize developers and teams and projects and creators and artists on the NFT side to really come and build and deploy and, and use Avalanche. And the Rush program is just, you know, it's a way to tell people, come try us, right? And the funny part is we announced the thing with only a little bit of incentives, but before Ave and Curve went live, you saw kind of a huge influx before the formal launch of Rush happened because of the ease of use with that bridge, right? So it was like, oh, Avalanche, let's go give it a chance. 
before the incentives are here and people realize how quick and easy it is to use relative to what they're used to. And Rush will continue to go on for a while, right? It's not meant to be just a quick shot in the arm to get it going. It's it, it's kind of to kickstart, but then to continually grow uh, by bringing a blue chip kind of ETH projects like Ave, Curve, Sushi, Kyber, as well as I think you've seen a dozen or two other kind of native ETH projects come over now because they want our users to have access and they want Ethereum users to try. But most importantly, it's bootstrapping and kind of getting an excitement within the developer community to say, well, if these guys are coming over and they are coming over and people love using it on Avalanche, let's build on Avalanche. Back to the point initially, right? Build on us, deploy on both, do whatever you want, but just to kind of continue to incentivize the builders and the dreamers and the users. Right on. Yeah, that's great stuff. And one thing I'll say is there was this narrative last year, I feel like, you know, who's going to kill Ethereum and who's going to win? And I think that narrative has shifted to how do we rise together? You know, it's been particularly strong in the NFT community. We see, you know, we feel that energy all the time. But I think it's carried over to the DeFi into the protocol world as well. And I don't think it's about picking one horse anymore. It's about gathering a stable and sort of winning together. So it's pretty awesome. One more Quick question before we sort of take a step back is, can you tell us a little bit more about the Avalanche subs? Sure. The subnets are this function. The way I would describe it is you have the primary network like John was alluding to earlier. That's the core stack right now as it exists right now. So all of the chains that people that use Avalanche are interacting with are in interacting with that primary network. Now in a near-term future, I think it's likely end of this year, early next year, sometime in that general ballpark. Don't necessarily want to quote me on that, but general idea of timing, we were going to have this concept called subnets. And subnets can do two functions, at least two main functions that we think are likely, but there's potentially a lot more. I've actually read a lot of discussions with the community and people are suggesting really cool ideas. And I'm like, oh, I actually haven't thought of that. And that's actually what's really cool about our space. This is kind of like the mind melding of just people that are all across the world with so many different perspectives. So the two cases that we feel like are likely would be one is to have permission subnets or permission blockchains that effectively connect to the permissionless primary network and are able to benefit from that, but also not necessarily have to lift up their walled garden, if you will. So if you have an enterprise or institution that wants to benefit from blockchain technology, then they would deploy their private subnet and that's kind of how they would do it. And the subnet on that side could be programmed with KYC AML capabilities, other things that could be programmed on chain that's kind of that angle. On the other side, then you also have this concept where subnets can then extend Avalanche's capabilities to other blockchains. What I mean by that is you can have something like Ethereum. So with case that we have now, we have the Ethereum virtual machine running on Avalanche. So simply put, you have Ethereum powered by Avalanche consensus, that really powerful consensus mechanism that John was talking about earlier. Now, this is basically the proof of concept for subnets being able to scale other chains effectively. And you can basically horizontally scale that concept across any chain that has scalability issues, so long as they're wrapped in a VM. And that's where you can then have this ecosystem of all these different blockchains that then can benefit. And hopefully, if you design it correctly, then composability also won't be an issue either, which seems to be something that's becoming more and more of an issue as there's you know a million and one wrapped assets, and it's not really quite clear as to where this is going to end. So those are the two functions I'd, I'd line up for, for subnets. 
to, to build on what Jay's saying with subnets, you know, this is huge both on the DeFi side, but also on the enterprise side, right? Imagine if you're a bank or you're an enterprise, you can have jurisdictional subnets, right? You can have a chain for the US, a chain for the EU, a chain that's for accredited investors, a chain that's for uh, GDPR restrictions, right? And then, but then those can separately work together and communicate with one another and communicate to the primary chain. So it's kind of like an internet of blockchains, right? So there's a ton there, but I want to go back to something real quick, Josh, that you mentioned that it just drives me crazy. That silly term of ETH killer that people love to say about us and a million other of our competitor chains, like that drives me absolutely nuts only because it's like such a concocted crypto Twitter, crypto media term. Because just like with our politics in the US, right? Like you put people in one corner, you put them in another, and then you let them fight it out. And it creates tension and that creates eyeballs and people well, love it. It's like for us, people say, is our NFTs a bubble? It's like these questions that are so binary just don't, yeah. don't make sense, right? <laughs> Generally though, like the way we see ourselves and granted, that doesn't mean that you can't think that what you're doing is better, have healthy competition and debate them the facts and the merits, right? of whether the technology or whatever it may be. But ultimately, for people who are in crypto or in NFTs, we see this as the entire universe, right? Because it's our day. Day in, day out, this is all we know. And then we talk to normal other people and they're, they're completely unfamiliar with what we're doing, right? And you, come to, you have to come to realize that we are still so incredibly early and people are arguing and fighting over such small pieces or such small crumbs that there's an infinitely large pie for everybody to have way too much to do with, right? So like maximalism exists with multiple chains and diehard fans and community is an amazing thing. But when that community becomes like, we're better, no, we're better, you suck. It just, that doesn't help, right? It doesn't help us uh, collectively as an ecosystem, as a market to grow and mature. So, so, so tune in next week for a grudge match between John Nahas and Vitalik Buterin. Next episode comes out ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, fortunately, that narrative I, I think is. I can't. I can't. Uh, I don't have the technical chops to even have a conversation. Yeah, I think the good thing though, John, is fortunately that narrative is starting to change, which was my point. Yeah, yeah, and and there is something to the community orientation in the world of NFTs in particular. Just the collaboration that's happening there, the partnerships that are happening there. It's just a little bit different from what we've experienced in crypto previously. So maybe the tide is shifting. Speaking of a shifting tide, I think we covered a ton of really amazing stuff about Avalanche, Avalanche Labs, and all the projects you guys have been working on. We want to take a step back and maybe look at some things from your your personal perspectives. We have this uh, segment that we call Edge Quick Hitters, and it's just a fun, quick way to get to know you guys a little bit better. It's 10 questions, looking for short, single word or, or few word answers, but you know, feel free to expand if you get the urge. You guys, uh, you guys on board to dive in? Let's do it. You want to do it? Okay, cool. All right, John, let's start with you. What's the first thing you remember ever purchasing in your life? A piggy bank. Oh, nice. You bought it with your money? No, my mom bought it for me and then I had to <laughs> the money, but I was at a store with her and she's like, what do you, I was like, I want that. It was, a, it was actually a train. Yeah. Got to be a piggy bank, so take it. Very practical, Jay. How about you? First thing, probably like Pokemon cards. Okay, yeah, nice. Question number two, Jay. We'll start with you. What is the first thing you remember ever selling in your life? Well, this is a maybe a controversial thing. I think this is the earliest thing I sold homework to my 
peers in middle school. <laughs> oh yeah. Got it. Got it. You're the guy you yeah. heard about in the news or whatever. Yeah, yeah exactly. Back in the day. <laughs> nice. John, how about you? I mean, I, I think I had a lemonade stand when I was like three or four and I thought I knew what I was doing, but you know, remember those catalogs when we were kids, they make, send them home with you and you'd have to sell junk to your family. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what did you sell? I don't know, like a wreath and a chocolate <laughs> basket. And I don't know, things like that. I don't know, right? Like, yeah. I'd call my mom and my aunts and uncles and be like, buy something from me. And they'd say, buy 50 bucks worth of junk. Oh, man. <laughs> I know. Funny stuff. Okay, question three, John. What is the most recent thing you purchased? I buy a lot of stuff to dismay of my wife. I actually just bought an air, I don't know what it's called, but it's a thing you plug into airplanes so that you can use your AirPods or your headphones. So I don't have to use their kind of, silly headphones that don't really work so i can use my own headphones it's like a bluetooth oh that's cool yeah that's cool how about you jay i think let's see i think i bought i bought new sneakers okay anything anything fancy we should know about i mean i'm definitely into sneakers this wasn't this was the middle of the road but like a limited adidas the new boosts the 40s they they actually 3d printed and i'm pretty sure they say it's made out of recyclable material i don't know if that's just marketing or not but i definitely fell for it that's pretty cool okay (laughs) i dig it jay what's the most recent thing you sold so I, i just got the new iphone and i own the old one so i sold the old iphone that's awesome. Yeah, like on one of the, like uh, one of the sites that like take it back or to a third party. <laughs> Did it through eBay. I'm like a big eBayer. I've just been doing it since like the early days. So I think I've just stuck with it. Oh, when they get into NFT, is something for you to uh, scope out. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. How about you, John? What's the most recent thing you sold? I don't sell many things to dismay my wife, so they just disappear from my life, and she sells them. I think that counts. We've if I had her, that one before, couple of NFTs. <laughs> Anything? Oh, that's uh, a good one too. You can disclose. No, I bought a bunch of one projects. I had a bunch of like random ones. I was just like, I'm gonna unload these. Download, yeah, yeah. We won't hurt their feelings. All right. Uh, right. <laughs> I sold them for what I bought for. They were just like common. Right, right. right. Um, since you do have a lot of things, John, what is your most prized possession? So my late father had a ring that he always wore, and he wore it in lieu of a wedding ring. And I always tell my mom, "This is his wedding ring." Uh, so after he passed, I have it and I, I keep that around all the time. Oh, right on. That's awesome. Jay, how about you? Yeah, I mean, actually, I think I have a similar answer. I have, so my great grandfather or great, yeah, great grandfather on my on my mom's side, he used to be the ambassador to Morocco in America. Actually, he's Japanese, but one of them, I guess there's a lot, but uh, he was in the NATO, he was part of the NATO agreement i think or actually no sorry nafta nafta that's the one. yeah and there he has cufflinks from the time they signed that deal and so i have cufflinks from there i always wear oh that's cool <laughs> at least yeah. formally formally yeah nice well jay and i have you know kind of international roots speaking of cufflinks i actually have my dad two of my dad's cufflinks right here in my drawer so when you said cufflinks i'm gonna pull them Get out, out. <laughs> yeah right on the same wavelength guys all right jay question six to you if you could buy anything in the world, digital, physical service and experience that's currently for sale, what would that be? I mean, I, I don't know if this is too long of an answer, but I'll try and keep it short. I've always thought of this. It's it's kind of like a billionaire's question, mm-hmm. uh, kind of similar to this. Yeah. I would get a house somewhere, probably in Colorado. I'm going to fit it, fit the basement with an incredible sound system. If you know sound, there's a company called Function One. They make incredible speakers. They're in like most of the big clubs. I'd fit it with that, have a proper, like, like comfortable chair, maybe like an Ames chair, like that type of vibe. 
and it'll just be like a sound room. I'm super into music. I would invite everybody. We'd have a great time just to kind of just have a room and kind of in the middle of nowhere, ex machina style, maybe. Yeah. We got to talk because our friend Elliot is in Miami right now, debuting these chairs that have sound sense and movement incorporated into them. So I, I think we got to add some layers to uh, nice. your vision there. Yes. And, yeah. and, and he's, we're talking about making these chairs also mine some crypto in their free time. <laughs> naturally, naturally. Of okay. course. <laughs> that's amazing. I want an invite to that room. That's for sure. John, how about you? I've been saying the same thing for like 10 years. And unfortunately now it's kind of a cliche in the news. I would love to go to space. I would pay for a trip to space. That's like my ultimate. I guess I can. Well, now I'm going to be William. Timing's Shatt. not as good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the timing sucks, but I'm willing to throw myself to the walls here. I would just be probably the most incredible experience, right? To see Earth from space and just be nuts. Yeah, I know. Right. Well, right now it's like ten minute expeditions or whatever. But I think in our lifetime we'll see something a little more accessible and longer. Yeah. Right on. Okay. John, question seven. If you could pass on one of your personality traits to the next generation, what would that be? Inquisitiveness. I, like I always ask why and how come and want to learn as much as I can. I don't think anyone can ever stop learning. I think there's a great part in Nassim Taleb's book about like Oko Umberto's library and like a person's knowledge is defined by all the things they don't know. So I'm always trying to learn more and read more. So I, I would hope that would continue especially nowadays, they think they know everything. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Jay, how about you? Yeah. I mean, that's definitely a good one, John. I, something similar is more like maybe flexibility or, or open-mindedness. And maybe just the quick anecdote there is like, I mean, if you don't always dismiss something as stupid or something that's beneath you, you're going to have much more opportunity. Hence why I think we all probably did that with, with crypto a little bit and said, hey, this is maybe a little bit esoteric, but I'm not going to brush it off. I'm going to dig deeper. And that's the type of mentality I guess it's very much similar to inquisitive, but at least it's kind of like, you know, overlapping circles, I would say. So that would be mine. Yeah. Well, let's flip it on its head then. If you could eliminate one of your personality traits from the next generation, what would that be? Jay, you good? Yeah. Mine, uh, I mean, I've definitely gotten better, but I think I, I have a twin sister. So I've just always been super, super competitive. And I think growing up, I knew that being stubborn was something that I was, was kind of the trait that was quote unquote negative. So I've always been working on that. I think it's, it's just a progress of life, I think. And if you could eliminate that early on, I guess that would be my answer. Right. Those double-edged swords ones, for sure. John, how about you? It's taken a lot of time for me to learn to listen mm. more and talk less. I'm still battling that, but hopefully they can listen earlier. You got it, man. Hey, okay. Question number nine, a little easier. What did you do just before joining us on the podcast? John, we'll start because <laughs> <laughs> nice. i was late for lunch <laughs> <laughs> how many times we do that right last one jay question 10 to you what are you going to do next after the podcast i'm probably so <laughs> i good kind of takeaway i guess i don't know when this is going to go live but right now john myself eight other colleagues from avalabs we're gearing up for lisbon blockchain week we have an incredible activation called avalanche house kind of a nod to the topic we were talking about earlier we're trying to really make it this open and engagement we have projects from all across the ecosystem, not just Avalanche. Actually, that's probably the minority segment. There's a lot of different chains that are going to be present. And I think it's just going to be a really cool environment where we're just going to meet a lot of people and really just have that wall taken down in kind of the spirit of just connectivity and just having fun and being human. And then hopefully that'll be successful. I'm actually really excited for it. John is as well, I believe. Wow, that sounds cool. 
John, how about you? What are you doing next? Taking a call with a partner. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> BD. Like all day, every day, you know, which is, it's amazing to be talking to so many great partners that we have and potential partners and stuff. And then, yeah, to Jay's point, finishing up as much work and emails and docs as I can before we head off to Lisbon next week. So. All right. Yeah, that's great. Well, guys, thanks so much for uh, rolling through Edge Quick Hitters with us. We appreciate it. I think we had a few hot topics to cover as well. Some really interesting news. Yep. Let's hit it. So first one up for bad is TikTok's messy NFT gambit is spooking its biggest artist. At end of September, TikTok trumpeted a pair of milestones, first announcing it had over a billion monthly active users worldwide. Second, it was preparing its first ever NFT collection, which was widely covered in the media. However, last Wednesday, when TikTok first announced collaboration with Lil Nas X and artist Rudy Willingham was supposed to arrive, it was nowhere to be found. The NFT was still MA on Monday, and a source close to the situation now tells Rolling Stone the release won't be coming out at all. And three people with knowledge of TikTok's NFT role described it as a challenge, a mess, and a complete joke, <laughs> and it may not be coming out at all. Now, this is terribly embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, man. But look, every big drop we've seen is run into difficulty, right? And I think yeah. part of it is just, it's pretty much new to everybody. I mean, you can bring a great team together. You can curate the right subject matter experts but it's new. It's freaking brand new. And it's like, you know, it's tough. I think that's an indication. It's tough. TikTok's got a lot of resources. They're a really entrepreneurial crew from what I can tell. They iterate, they release products quickly. They respond to their customer feedback, but you know, even an organization that big with that many resources still is going to run into difficulty. But what's really cool is just comparing this with the success of some of these NFT, you know, profile pick projects where it's just kind of like a ragtag group of ambitious artists and creators, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. Maybe they they pull it off. It's the right team. It's the right chemistry. It's the right scope. But there's an element of randomness. And, you know, there's been projects I've been a believer in and I've seen the floor drop by 50% in the snap of a fair, but then they come roaring back. So you never know, even after the launch, what's actually going to happen. And I think it's also with the smaller projects, especially the PFPs, you basically have hyper-evangelized professionals, three, four, or five at max, honestly. And that's to their advantage. So they can work around the clock. They believe in the same vision. So you no longer have to do that cultural alignment. With NFTs and TikTok, I can only imagine TikTok's main mission is to drive content on their application. It's not to drop NFTs. So all of a sudden you have probably a handful of subject matter experts. They now have to convince all these different stakeholders. And these stake, some of these stakeholders think it's just a matter of uploading a JPEG and calling it a day. And others might have stronger opinions on either side. So I think that's what's really making it complex. And of course, also, I think maybe it's like perhaps their PR and marketing department also overestimated how complex the situation is. And they're like, oh, well, this is like a product drop. So we did this before and we're going to have, you know, like tease a roadshow where we'll tease the announcement and we'll have it and bet you what happened was the engineering department, product departments, they're like, this is nowhere to be nowhere close to be done. It's not going to work. And I think maybe that's how they scrambled and maybe scrapped it. I mean, I don't mess with TikTok much, but I, what I would expect and what I've seen firsthand and, I, and I've seen is, you know, to your guys' point, right? There's a small group of people, they have a mission in mind, they launch something and they evangelize it. When you're dealing with bigger companies, 
there becomes multiple stakeholders, multiple opinions, and something we call scope creep, right? Oh, we'll add this feature. Oh, but we need to do this too. And then this guy puts his two cents in because he wants his department to be represented. So, oh, but we'll do this feature too. And then everybody starts adding these things. They think it's easy, but then you can't really patch it together because once you do, things happen. Also, you might try something new. And when you try something new, there's always inevitably going to be issues and roadblocks. It's how you kind of fix them, you iterate, you support it, you make it better. And some of these guys are just too big, right, to do that in a kind of efficient or timely manner, right? So if they turn something on and it doesn't work, they just scrap it, right? They're not going to go back and put the time in to fix it. So that's the deal. I'm curious if there's any role in this of like developer mentality. I mean, I've gotten a sense that there's a handful of people who are developers. I mean, a large handful, but, you know... They're folks that are excited about, you know, Solidity, cryptocurrencies, NFTs, and they're diving in to do this work. But I think a lot of people learn development, right? Learn programming because they want a nice, stable job that pays really well. And so, you know, those folks are still stuck in the world and learning the, the coding skills that are, that are needed to fulfill those jobs. And they're, they might be at a shortage when it comes to fulfilling the needs of a project like this. I, I don't know if that's the case. Um, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that, but I'm wondering if, if that's part of what's going on here. It may be, man. It's a different, definitely uh, culturally very distinctive, I think, when you think of like developer mentality, right? Yeah. I mean, I think what I hear all the time is, you know, I think business people, myself included, say, why don't we do this? Because it sounds easy. And what I've learned from my product team and, and our, pro- our head of product is if it sounds easy, it's because it's actually hard. Making things with technology easy is actually hard. There's no such thing as something easy. So I think business people or executives sometimes are like, oh, we'll we'll just do this little thing. It's easy or it's small. Well, to make technology easy, it's a lot of work, right? And I think people trip on themselves. So developers are told, oh, we'll just do this. Yeah, it's just, it was a word that we outlawed at territory. (laughs) (laughs) On top of being easy, it might appear to be inexpensive as well, right? All right, let's uh, hit the next hot topic here. It's going to be an interesting one. FTX US launches collectibles arm in boost to Solana-based NFTs. So on Monday, US wing of Sam Bankman-Fried's crypto empire said its new marketplace FTX NFTs will allow users to trade, mint, auction, and authenticate Solana-based NFTs. It plans to soon support NFTs, the Ethereum blockchain, the prioritization of Solana may highlight two realities. Bankman-Fried is heavily invested in the Solana ecosystem and that ecosystem, while host to a handful of so-called blue chip projects, doesn't yet have a juggernaut marketplace for NFT trading. So this is very interesting, you know, sort of trying to boost an ecosystem that's in existence by highlighting it in any project. Yeah. I mean, more marketplaces are coming from from big platforms. It's expected OpenSea won't, won't process 98% of all NFT transactions forever, right? And it makes sense that people would would try to you know, incorporate, vertically integrate where they can. I mean, massive followings, right? Communities, what it's all about, even though they've got some, these communities, you know, let's say Binance's community is, is a bit different than, let's say, you know, the community of people that support, you know, a particular musician or something like that, right? So it's a different dynamic, but still a massive community and access to them. And so when you have that, man, you could launch almost anything and test it across that community very quickly. So not surprised at all, FTX is jamming on all kinds of fronts. Yeah. I mean, the Solana art user interface, it's 
bad. No offense to those guys, but FTX knows how to crush UI UX in a way that's uh, very special. So a lower price plus their UX uh, team behind this, I'm pretty. Have you used it, the the platform, or is it not out yet? It's just the announcement. I don't think yet. I have not used it. If it is out. Got I'm it. just saying, fundamentally, it makes sense. I'm sure they'll do a good job. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm a big fan of the, the exchange. Totally. Also, just curious, looking back here, I haven't done the, done the research or or tried to extrapolate here, but I, you know, we just started the podcast what six months ago, and as we talked about various platforms, you know, OpenSea was one among several that seemed to be on the tip of people's tongues, and I'm curious you know, what their market share was just even a half a year ago or, you know, two years ago, have they always been 90% or did they really rapidly gain that market share over the past uh, year or so? Oh, you're saying OpenSea? Yeah, OpenSea. How quickly has that happened recently or has that been a longstanding? They, I mean, what's funny is we were going head to head with OpenSea in 2017 or trying to at AirSwap we were airswap was mostly geared towards the ERC20s but ERC721s were getting bigger kind of with how we led off the podcast with the crypto kitty story and and the thing that OpenSea had they were only focusing on NFTs when no one else was focusing on it at all and so that was already an upper hand i remember even thinking what is the point of this OpenSea thing when no one's it just kind of these like low value pfps at the time right there was like I think there were metaverse items. There was like Gods Unchained was a really big project at that age. I still thought it was a really good idea. I checked recently. They haven't really done too much with it or at least haven't gotten too much traction. And then they had some a, lot, a bunch of these PFPs. And I think what ended up happening was since they already had basically all the whole market, um, not that many other marketplaces exist, once this activity started picking up, all the crypto native people would be like, oh, well, OpenSea, go to OpenSea. And then as the mainstream people came in this past year, I would say, with the huge rush that we had with NFTs, like late 2020, then I think the natural thing was, all right, the people that can figure out how to configure MetaMask and get ETH on their wallet and things like that, they're going to be able to play in this market. The people that can't, can't. And I think that kind of margin has narrowed a little bit as we move along. And then effectively, then you had a bunch of other marketplaces like Rarible and things like that start to focus on certain things like UX or UI even, or, or different community. Nifty is also another big one, I would say. So I think that's how they started to lose it a little bit. So I think they had more if I had to totally guess without any metrics in my mind. And then they started to lose that traction. But it's not like it's a negative by any means. It's just the pool is getting wider. The percentage is getting lower. Yeah, I love that. Thanks. Thanks for that, Jay. You had a lot of answer to my question. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. As someone it. who w- watched it happen and slip away from my fingers, I know a bit about it. We got one more topic, Ethan. <laughs> Let's do it. NFT rentals. Yes. YVCs are backing a puzzling new project. Lenders can send NFTs they want to rent out to a smart contract after determining the daily rental price and maximum rental period. Borrows then input how long they want to own quote unquote, the NFT paying the rent costs plus a collateral amount equivalent to the price of the NFT, which they get back once the NFT is returned. So uh, re-NFT is the project. They see the future of its lending protocol extending to the metaverse where users could rent out their play to earn items, IP, and even digital real estate. We've been talking about this already here on the podcast. You know, what's the value of, of holding some of these NFTs 
long term that, you know, you may not be able to utilize all the utility of, you know, can you still hold them and then it's almost like real estate or property rentals in, in a sense. Well, you know, what's funny about re NFT is they won our first hackathon that we threw in the fall money. Day. Get out of here. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So I'm actually glad that they're making waves, I guess, but they came up with the concept and it was cool and it's still cool. And I'm actually, I pull up the website because I was like, this sounds so familiar. I scrolled down our hackathons at the bottom there. So yeah, glad to see that happening. I think it's an interesting concept. Again, it's the open-mindedness point that I made earlier about that kind of trait that I want to pass down, but also that kind of comment with OpenSea. You know, initially you want to say like rental NFTs, that sounds a little silly, but maybe from my perspective, at least want to be a little bit more open-minded about it, especially as it's still been around for now a year and change, I would say. And it seems like it's it's a lot bigger in reach. So that's a cool idea. Yeah, it makes perfect sense, right? I mean, NF, so you can fragment NFTs if they're bigger, you know, you can buy more, but then you might end up buying 10 NFTs and you really just want one. And then, you know, it goes up in value. You want to have some liquidity in the short term, which is what's beautiful about blockchain. We just talked to another team uh, that's launching another liquidity platform for NFTs we might have as a hot topic soon. But I think this is inevitable and it's a really good value add for the NFT industry. Yeah, dude, there's big, for me, I look at it, there's these major inflection points that happen and have happened in the evolution of NFTs. Like, of course, ERC 721 and then 1155 and all these different steps. This idea and how it forms to me is one of those inflection points because it really taps into what can be possible with utility based NFTs. Being able to rent that utility to somebody else is pretty interesting. It's pretty important. If it's like if you have like a V friend and you can go to the first and the third VCon, but you can't make it to the second, you could rent that you know, to somebody, they could use it, they could attend that conference, you could still get the value from it and then have that return to you. So for me, it's like, man, my mind starts racing. I'm just thinking about all the different utilities where that would be interesting to be able to rent. I mean, I, I'll take it a step further, right? Aside from the, from what we're thinking about NFTs now and, and borrowing against them or loaning them out or, or earning revenue. I mean, think of NFTs as a potential mortgage, right? Like your mortgage could be an NFT. And then instead of having to go to a bank to get a home equity line, you can just rent out part of your mortgage or your deed or whatever, right? Or your car ownership. Instead of a pink slip, you have an NFT, right? And like, oh, you need a quick loan. You're going to use your car as collateral. So the real world implications are more so than just on the collectibles or digital art side. It can you know, we're doing something with a company now for invoice factoring, right? So if you're a company, you have 30 day payment terms, you can go sell that invoice to someone else for 90 cents on the dollar. That person can wait and redeem it for the full dollar or sell it for 95. And just, there's so much to do. Yeah, it's, it's big. And a lot of it, like you said, it's some of it isn't the sexiest stuff, right? So you don't hear about it that much in the press. It's all the stuff that's going to be part of our lives, period. I and mean, then we may not even know it. Exactly. Well, cool. Well, I think, yeah, that's hot topics, guys. I mean, it's been amazing. I know we've gone on even longer than we normally do here. Just so much to cover. It's really amazing to hear all about everything you got going on at Avalanche and Avalabs and, you know, wanted to let our listeners know where they can go to follow all of these amazing exploits. What's the best place to, to track you guys? I would suggest Twitter, Avalanche, AVAX. So that's the handle. If someone's not necessarily looking for social channels and someone's more looking for dApps that they want to use, I would say ecosystem.avax.network. Those two resources are excellent if you want to keep an eye out. And then, I mean, goes without saying, but reach out to any one of us on the Avalabs team. Happy to chat. I think more perspectives, the best. 
as, as we move along this strange, strange path of Web3. Right on. And also, I think we talked about doing a maybe like a little giveaway or something. Do you have any details on that we want to share? Yeah. So I think the, the giveaway we came up with was five Avox for two winners a piece. I guess I don't know how you guys run those, though. Maybe you guys can clue me in on that. Yeah, of course. <laughs> we'll do a cool little Gleam campaign and share across our respective ecosystems around sort of folks listening to the show and uh, learning more about Avalanche and all the cool stuff you guys are doing. That's amazing. Yeah, very generous. Amazing. Appreciate it. Yeah. So keep an eye out on our socials for that, everybody. Okay. Well, I think we've reached the outer limit at the edge of NFTs for today. So thanks for exploring with us. We've got space for more adventures on this starship. So invite your friends and recruit some cool strangers that will make this journey all so much better. How? Go to iTunes right now, rate us and say something awesome. Then go to edgeofnft.com to dive further down the rabbit hole. Want to help co-create Edge of NFT with us? Got guests you want to see in an episode, questions for hosts or guests, an NFT you'd like us to review. Drop us a line at contact at edgeofnft.com or tweet at us at edgeofnft to get in the mix. Lastly, be sure to tune in next time for more great NFT content. Thanks again for sharing this time with us today. The views and opinions expressed on the Edge of NFT podcast reflect solely those views and opinions of the show creators and its guests. We're learning as we go, just like you. Please make sure to do your own research. Our podcast is not financial advice. There are multiple strategies and not all strategies fit all people. You understand that you are using any and all information available on or through this podcast at your own risk.